You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Amen. So glad you guys are here with us today. And so our prayer through this Advent series, if you haven't been with us in a few weeks, we are pausing our sermon through John to look at this Advent, Come Lord Jesus through Isaiah. Our prayer through this Advent season is that we would encounter God as a promise keeper through the ages and that we'll learn to live today in the comfort of God's promises about tomorrow. That's the prayer that we've been praying as as a staff team and as pastors for us as a church during this time. Uh, Today, the title of the sermon as I was preparing for it, I, I heard someone say Isaiah 53 is really a biography of the Messiah. I was like, that's the title. I'm just going to rip that straight from that guy. So today's title is The Biography of the Messiah. This passage truly is a great summary of our Savior. Now, in this season, especially, we can hear, and it's Christmas time, right? We, we read these passages, we hear these stories, we celebrate them, we sing songs about them on the radio when we come home. You guys are having work Christmas parties. You guys are having, uh, not Friendsgivings, but whatever the equivalent of that is for Christmas is, right? Friends Christmas parties and, and uh, GC Christmas parties, and you're doing things that kind of surround in a nebulous way all these truths about Christmas, about the coming of our Lord Jesus. But sometimes we can become bored with it. We can become bored with simplicity. We can become numb to the reality of the truth of the greatness of it. We pay little attention to incredible things if those incredible things are kind of constant. Something can still be incredible But the more that we see it, the more that we're aware of it, the more we interact with it, the the less it kind of loses its luster, right? So, um, you know, with it deer season, right? All the guys perk up, you know. Deer season kind of uh, in full effect. I don't really know if we're at on it. But I was reading this article. found it very, very interesting. This term I'd never heard before called antlerogenesis. Antlerogenesis. This is the formation and development of antlers okay and this is a seasonal phenomenon uh, amongst deer obviously you know I mean you want to bag your trophy buck right but this process happens every year antler growth did you know is the fast is faster the growth of antlers is faster than cancer growth and what is unknown to scientists is how deer can start this process with a snap of a finger. On a dime, deer shed their antler and start regrowing it just like that. And scientists have no idea how this can happen. But what they're doing now is they are studying this process with hopes of linking the expression of this deer's, this deer's gene of growing antlers in order to somehow map and sequence that gene so to give us some answers about how we can cure cancer. It's incredible, right? I read this story, and I was like, neat. And then I went about my day. But that's incredible. We're studying antlers 
to see if we can cure cancer. Another, I watched an interview with the neuroscientist. This interview, he was sharing the danger about becoming too good or too comfortable with whatever, something in your field, okay? Uh, he cited in the case of freedivers. Now, the world record is a guy in, from France. He can hold his breath for 11 minutes and 35 seconds. 11 minutes, that's the world record. That's about 11 minutes longer than I can, <laughs> all right? But what they do and how these freedivers train is they train up their tolerance of carbon dioxide in their bloodstream. And so what happens, the best ones, as you get better and better at this, the, the EMTs and the ambulance, they have to be more, watch you more often, more carefully, because you have the more likelihood of dying. Because as your, <coughs> excuse me, as your tolerance of CO2 builds in your, in your bloodstream, the more likely it is for you to die. And freedivers often die. They're just going about it like they would normally do, and then lights go off and they're gone. Skilled parachuters, in the same way, the people who have parachuted, jumped out of a plane thousands and thousands of times safely, they die because they're so comfortable and they forget to pull their chute. It's incredible. There's a danger in us becoming too familiar or becoming too good at something, and that's my fear as we read this text this morning. We become too familiar, we hear it too often, we see it, we read it too much, especially in this time, that we kind of become numb to the realities of what we're reading. So, today, this is a very rich text. Now, I'm guilty of it. Uh, Pastor Howard, I'm sure there's other pastors. There's, you've probably heard this saying, we could spend an entire lifetime. Matt Burton's probably guilty of this. We could spend an entire lifetime on this passage. And you're like, well, what does that mean, right? You, you, we always kind of hear this. Well, here, here, this is what I mean. In this chapter, the biography of the Messiah, there are elements of the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, the humanity of Christ, the doctrine of justification, how Jesus was our penal substitutionary atonement to God, intercession, the revelation of how God chooses to reveal himself to humanity. It discusses humility. It discusses the suffering nature of the Messiah, the servanthood of the Messiah. It talks about grace. It talks about the monergistic work of God to carry out his will and plan to redeem humanity. It talks about the glory of God in this chapter. When I say rich text, you could spend an entire life studying this chapter simply because it is a chapter dedicated to our Messiah. Okay? All of these have huge implications for our life and our faith. So, a little context before we jump in today. Isaiah is a major prophet. I have a quote uh, from an author named Jay Baxter. It says this, What Beethoven is in the realm of music, what Shakespeare is in the realm of literature, what Spurgeon was among the Victorian preachers, it, that is Isaiah 
among the prophets. Psalms is the only book in the Old Testament that is referred to more times than that of Isaiah. And chapter 53, one of the best known chapters in the Word of God, is known of the, as the Holy of Holies of Isaiah. It gives us this wonderful, clear, prophetic picture of the suffering and death of the Messiah. There are at least 80 references, 80 references to Isaiah, both directly and indirectly in the New Testament. And a great majority of those references are tied directly to Isaiah 53. Certainly, if we had someone who had never seen the Bible, never touched the Bible, if they read Isaiah 53, and then in the next setting, they read the gospel account of our Lord Jesus Christ, certainly they must admit that the history and the prophecy fit perfectly when they're applied to Jesus. Now, this quote ought to help your faith. Have it up here. This section contains unarguable, incontrovertible proof, proof that God is the author of Scripture and Jesus the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. The details are so minute that no human could have predicted them by accident and no imposter could have fulfilled them by manipulation. This chapter is the announcement of our salvation. And to that, we are grateful. <laughs> right? So today, where I'm going with this, I broke it into four sections. And one of my favorite rides um, now as an adult, I think my mom could attest to this, but my, um, as I get older, when we go to water park, my favorite thing to do is get into the lazy river. All right? All right so I want to take the lazy river approach to this this chapter today, albeit we don't have that much time to be in the lazy river. Like I said, we could spend an entire lifetime in the lazy river. But, however, for the next about 20, 30 minutes or so, I want us to look at four sections. The first section is verses 1 through 3. I've entitled this, Nothing Special. Nothing Special. We read of the Messiah will be nothing special. He'll be written off. Section 2 is he's carried all. We read of the Messiah doing the work, carrying the burden him stricken. The third is save face. We read of the Messiah being silent in the face of accusations. And number four, the fourth section we will read, we'll look at is entitled Beautiful, Not Pretty. Beautiful, Not Pretty. Verse one, the Messiah written off. 53, verse one, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom is the Lord, arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up out of, before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Been married for 12 years. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, upon being married, my wife brought in these different sayings that I was not familiar with. We just didn't use them uh, in my family growing up, and so I was a little bit like shell-shocked, but I've now adapted them into my vernacular. Uh, she used to always say, when I would ask her questions, like, hey, what are you doing after this, and what are you going to do? What do you think about this? And I'm, I'm asking her these questions. She'd say, what are you writing a book? You know? And then I, I would be like, so what did you think about the dinner? What did you think about the steak? 
What do you think about the, the pulled pork that we just smoked? What do you think about this? Could you? She's like, eh, nothing to write home about, right? She'd always say this. You guys feel free to use those. I appreciate the laughter coming over here. Um, I was just like, what's up with all these journalism references? Like, are you guys, you know, I don't know, beat writers or something in the Sampeo uh, household? But this text really is about Jesus being written off. The people saw him, saw the Messiah, and thought this is nothing to write home about. This is the story of the first coming of the Messiah from meager beginnings. Jesus, in contrast, did not appear in such a way as to attract the natural men. He would have no striking appearance that would draw the attention of people and make them think, wow, look at him. Nothing. Nothing of his physical appearance would make you think something about that guy. It's interesting. It reminds me of another time in scriptures when, when God raised up a leader, a man, a king, and the people said, no, 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 no. We want someone that is, has a physical stature, who's handsome, who, who is in some way glorious and glamorous. We don't want the little shepherd boy David. Who do we want? We want Saul, right? Think about this. Jesus entered the world in, as a baby, not a king. He was born in a stable, not a castle. He asked the preacher of his time to baptize him. He made no announcement at the beginning of his public ministry. Hey, I'm going to start now. Did not do that. Even John the Baptist didn't recognize Jesus for who he was at first. He blended into the crowd and was not outstanding. He was written off. They saw him and they thought there's nothing to write home about, about this guy. Our English word despised, when we, when we hear this word, when we read this word, we often kind of think of a negative emotional context when we, when we think of, I despise that or I despise you. But the Hebrew text, really, the source means to be considered worthless or unworthy of attention. And again, it's second nature for us to reject or dismiss something if we deem that it is not significant to us. But it almost seems... Not right. It seems inconceivable that the people of God would reject this come Messiah. But maybe because so many people rejected the Messiah is exactly why he was despised or thought of as no one. When we think about how Jesus presented himself, we read here this prophecy in Isaiah. We read about how the Messiah presents himself to the world. What does this say about our God? He could have come in any shape or form. He has ultimate power, full power to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And this is how he chose to come. What does this say what can we learn about the character of our God and how he has entered earth? It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 25. I memorized it in the NIV. It says, For the foolishness of God is wiser 
than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. To these things, we don't know, but we do know that he is wiser and he is stronger. Section 2, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our souls, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a gospel text. What a text. If we just look topically at what he has carried up to this point in this text, just look, just look at this. Despised, rejected, men hid their faces. They esteemed him not. They, he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced for transgressions, crushed for iniquities, chastised, wounded, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Folks, I am I'm one whenever bad things happen to just laugh it off and use humor as a coping mechanism. But hear me, that list I just read, that's what we deserve. We deserve to be despised and rejected and cast off and carried the burdens, the sorrows, transgressions, crushed, chastised. We deserve this. But we read, praise God, that this is what our Messiah received. The expression laid on him literally means to strike with great force. Paul and Peter respectively put them in New Testament words for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.24 and 25, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. For you are continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. I, um, I, I, we don't watch a ton of TV in the house, but we more so like tune into like YouTube channels, okay, when we follow all these YouTube people. And if you looked at my, like who I follow on YouTube, you'd be like, who are you? But um, I follow this uh, family and they're ranchers. Uh, they're sh- uh, sheep ranchers in Texas, and, um, and so they, I just like, they like vlog about them like driving their, you know, side by side out by the sheep and stuff, and I'm like, I don't know, this is entertaining, I guess, and so um, I follow this family, and I was watching them one day, and they, uh, they, they uh, ranch sheep, and, and so they're out there with these ewes, and um, I was like, man, that one is moving fast, and he calls, and it's actually a dog, and I didn't know this. I'm like, maybe I'm not, I wouldn't be a great rancher. Um, interestingly enough, there's a breed of dog, the Great Pyrenees, and these are called guardian dogs, 
Okay, any ranchers in the house? No? All right, good. Guardian dogs, right? Not only do these things look like sheep, they're big furry things, but these things are bred with the purpose of protecting livestock from predators. Livestock guardian dogs stay with the group of animals they protect as a full-time member of that herd. They're not pets. And sometimes people driving through ranches will think, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a poor dog out there laying in the, with, the, with the herd. And it's like, no, that's its job. That's what it's bred to do. That's what it knows to do, to, to bring and shepherd uh, sheep back into the herd and also protect them from uh, enemies, from predators. This family that I watch, they go out, and the Great Pyrenees is a big, fluffy, white dog, and it was like all brown and red, and it was covered in blood, and they went, and they're like, took it to the vet because they thought something might have, you know, hurt this thing, or, you know, it was obviously out protecting the herd, and um, they're like, the vet's looking it over, and it's like, no, this is not your dog's blood, and then they keep walking and driving out in the pasture, and they found six coyotes dead. Six coyotes dead because this dog was doing its job. This dog was doing its job. And just as our God has brought us back into the fold and resides with us now with His Spirit, He is a full-time member of your life in our hearts. Protecting us as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So what was laid on him? This is where we get the term propitiation comes from. By laying on Jesus all of these things, he, Jesus, appeased the wrath of God that was meant for us. The wrath of God, the punishment for every prideful boast, every covetous desire, every lustful glance, Every bit of greed, every bit of envy, every bit of arrogance, every bit of gluttonous, every bit of laziness, every bit of self-centeredness, every debauchery act, every immoral act, every possession that has been stolen, every murder that has been committed, every angry exchange, every time you cheat, for all people in the world, the punishment that had been stored for all of those was poured onto him. This is why we can say the grace of God is free, but it's not cheap. It's not cheap. What does it say? Sorry, what does it mean when we say by his wounds we are healed? I've got a quote. The servant has sufficiently shouldered the consequences of sin and the righteous wrath deserved by sinners. The manner in which God laid our iniquity on him was that God treated him as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, though he was perfectly innocent of any sin. God did so to him so that wrath being spent and justice satisfied, God could then give the account of sinners who believe the righteousness of Christ treating them as if they had done only the righteous acts of Christ. In both cases, this is substitution. What a gospel 
text. Martin Luther called this the great exchange, where my record of sinfulness and trespass and iniquity has been given to the Savior Jesus, and He takes it and bears it and is punished for it, and in return we get His righteous record of faith and perfection, and we are seen now in the eyes of our all-loving Father, the record of Jesus. This great exchange is the basis of our faith and our hope and is found in this text. It's incredible. Here's a sidebar, though. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, all these things I have just read, the sins of man, we really do not know the extent of sin in our lives. The far-reaching nature, how sin warps and corrupts everything it touches. And if you're wondering if it has touched you, it's too late. It has. Okay, look around, read a, read a headline, wake up. The world is a sinful place. We can't even fathom. We can see it as sinful, and I'm not trying to be bleak, but as sinful as you think it is, it's worse. The sinfulness of sin is an incredible thing. So, how cruel would it be if there was a person in need of some serious medical attention? If they're dying in front of the doctor or the nurse or the EMT, and the doctor or the nurse or the EMT, the medical professional, looks at this person who is in need of some serious medical treatment and looks at him and says, uh, you'll be all right. How cruel would that be? I mean, that doctor, that nurse, that EMT is fired for malpractice the next day. There's going to be lawsuits, right? And why do we do the same with a sinful people? We see our neighbors and our family and our friends in desperate, desperate need, and we look at them, and instead of proclaiming and sharing with them that there is a guardian who has taken your place, we say, oh, yeah, it's okay. It's all right. You'll be okay. Uh, maybe just try to clean up your life a little bit. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. The call to repentance is a call into the loving arms of Jesus. The most loving thing that we can do is to tell people to look to Him. We must be aware of our desperate need for him. Number three, save face. Verse seven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. His purpose wasn't to have a comfy, cozy life. He, it wasn't to prove that he was right. It wasn't to stick it to his accusers. He didn't need to tell his side of the story to be heard. 
he wasn't there for a he was there for a purpose and that purpose didn't need defense he was in control and i love reading passages like this because it just reminds me that real power remains calm under serious crisis it doesn't need real power doesn't need to have a show of its power proof that i i am powerful watch out that's not a powerful man a powerful man remains in control it has the capability of taking out sin of taking out six coyotes This section, as I was preparing for this, I kept bringing back to mind, and, th- and this, uh, this ties in a little bit to our worldview. Uh, if you don't know, we live primarily in a guilt-innocence worldview, a way of looking, our, our worldview is just how we see and interact with the world and people in it. Now, uh, my wife and I, for a number of years, we lived overseas as missionaries, and so when we were over there, we lived in a different culture, a different primary worldview than ours this honor shame worldview uh, in the east is displayed in this text so um, oftentimes around this uh, time of the in the calendar we would uh, have a bunch of students uh, from the university a bunch of students and a bunch of friends come into our house because they were interested in Christmas they were interested in, in knowing what do Americans do for Christmas, what are their traditions like, and a similar that you might be interested in like the Dragon Boat Festival or uh, the Lantern Festival or something like that of, uh, of Asian uh, religions and, and um, traditions, they were interested in, in ours. And so they would come in and we would tell stories, we would tell all of these stories and explain why we celebrate what we celebrate, how we celebrate what we celebrate, and all of the fact. Now, you see, in an individualistic society like ours, we operate primarily off of the idea that if everyone in society takes care of themselves individually, if everyone takes care of themselves, this will ensure the benefit of the society as a whole. If you look out for yourself, this will ensure the benefit of the whole. Now, pursuing interests that are in any way that can benefit me becomes my identity. But you see that this is kind of where we get an identity crisis. is because if my value, if me taking care of myself will help ensure the society as a whole, well, what happens when I can't do the thing that I am good at doing? What happens when I'm injured? Or what happens when I just can no longer perform those things? Then we have this crisis of identity and who am i am i even valuable anymore it's a problem that we can see there's a friction with this individualistic society your identity is tied so much to what you can bring to the table what is valued in an individualistic society is independence and self-sufficiency in contrast in other in a lot of other cultures in the world where a is called a collectivist society like most of the Far East. This operates off the idea that if everyone in the society looks out for the well-being of each other, this will ensure the benefit of the society as a whole. One's identity is in large part a function of one's membership and role in the group. Group and family is valued highest. One way that I like to uh, help, I, I taught this to my students when we were overseas, but I can help teach you. If, if if I took, if I interviewed 100 
uh, people from 18 to 35 years of age. And I said, I want you to finish this statement in America. If I did this for 100 people in America, and I said, finish the statement. In America, we fight for our freedom. Ding, ding, ding. 99 out of 100 people would probably say freedom. In the same way, in Eastern countries, if I asked them, in China, Japan, other Eastern countries, we fight for our family, our country. The difference is seen in individualism versus collectivism. But what's interesting, as we read this text, and as I was sharing this text with with the group of students where we were, they understood the motives of Jesus much better than I think we can at times. We, where we see the passion of Christ as what he has done for me, that certainly is true. They see the benefit of how Jesus did what he did for the whole. This is a much larger picture of the passion of Christ. It's not only what he did and for whom he did it, but how he did it. Now, after explaining this, uh, this is a dear friend of mine. We still try to stay in contact. Um, a brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, rough English, to, uh, you know, uh, not a great English speaker. But we were good friends. We played basketball, played soccer a lot. We were, we'd eat lunch often. And I was explaining this to him. I was explaining the trial and the torture and the mocking and the shame that Jesus willingly endured all while being innocent, right? All while being innocent. And this was his response. I'll I'll never forget it. He said, he must really love his people. And he must really want to bring honor to his family name. To us, a person like that is a hero. He he doesn't have a Bible. He has no context for any of this stuff. But as I'm explaining what our Messiah has done and done silently, innocently, that was his response. He must really love his people. Church, he really loves his people. He really does. No retaliation. No guilt. He stays silent. He doesn't plead his case. It's almost infuriating, right? Like, Jesus, what are you doing? You have all power. You have the ability in a snap to send a legion of angels down and turn this place upside down. What are you doing? My Savior, my God, why are you letting this happen to you? Save yourself! He's like, no, I'm saving you. I'm here for you. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He endured because he had a purpose. I love uh, this quote from Dr. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He said, the cross, it was beautiful, but not pretty. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. God's word shows that that which is in one sense a tragedy is the source of our deepest joy. What Christ suffered at the hands of men was tragic. In and through that tragedy, God was working out his sovereign purpose of grace in Isaiah. It emph- he emphasized that. Now, when we say that God was satisfied, he was pleased because his purpose in him was accomplished. But this in no means mean that it was enjoyable for him to behold. It wasn't a pleasurable experience for God the Father to crush his perfect son. But again, what does this say of the character of our God if he's willing to do this to crush his only begotten perfect son? He must really love us. He must really care. One commentator says, No prophet is more fully occupied with the redemptive work of Christ. In no other place is there such a clear view of grace. Now, what is grace? Kind of hear that. We sing it all the time, right? What is grace? I've heard it this way. Grace is receiving that which you do not deserve. Receiving that which you do not deserve. And what we do not, we, we read a list earlier of what we do deserve. And so not receiving that is actually mercy. But with all of the things we inherit as children adopted into the kingdom, we get a wonderful display of his grace. This is where the doctrine in this passage, specifically verse 11, the doctrine of justification is very clear. Okay, this is where we call penal substitutionary atonement. Fancy words. Penal means it's the penalty. He took the penalty of wrath that was, should have been us that should have been given to us he took the penalty he was a substitute so where i should have been standing he put himself there we switched places as an atonement he took the penalty in the place to make us right with god to bridge the dividing walls of hostility this sacrifice fully and completely satisfies the problem of sin you know this is more you've you've said uh the idea in another term that I've heard from my wife and her family is, you know, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself, right? God's like, if you want something done right, I have to do it. There's no other way. If you want it to be done perfectly, I must do it. God's term No one has ever and will ever get close to meeting God's standards like God does. There was no, oh, almost. You almost got it. Never. Never has, never is, and never will be. And verse 11 also presents us with a unique concept that he is the only one who is both in in himself holy and capable of producing holiness in others. It's a very interesting 
This is the good news, guys. This is the good news of the gospel, that the living God, the creator of the world, present with us humans in our world, in his Son, the infinitely loved Son, the eternal Son, the image and radiance of God's essence, through faith, through believing and receiving him, we are connected to him and the Father and so share in all of the riches of heaven, namely eternal life with God. So the good news. So what do we receive when we should have been despised and rejected, smitten, beaten and mocked, scorned, pierced, crushed for iniquity? All of the riches of heaven. What does this mean for us in conclusion? You see, the problem with the Jews of the day was they were surprised by how the Messiah will bring God's kingdom to pass. To pass excuse me. No one could have ever written a tragedy as awful of a story as our Messiah. And the truth is, is that in the same way, so many people, even today, have a problem with how God has brought things to pass. No one would ever suspect that the way that the kingdom would come would be that the one with all power to do anything gives it up, lays it down, sacrifices himself. And it bothers many today. Might bother you. Might bother you for the fact that why would he do that? What does this say about our God's character? He's in control. There's no doubt about that. Verse 12, it talks about being numbered with the transgressors. I, I wrestled with this point all throughout the week because it is such a, uh, it, it just left such a, a strange taste in my mouth as I was thinking about it. We have no basis for empathy to understand he who knew no sin was made sin. We have no, we have little of no effect. We have no understanding of how, what the effect this would have on a perfectly sinless man. Someone who's perfect, unblemished, untouched of sin to then become sin. The Messiah is truly lonely in a category by himself and to the to the degree that we do not fully understand the depth and how sinful sin is we have no category to understand how beautiful and holy and perfect and blameless our messiah is no the greatest loftiest things you can think of when you when you look to Jesus, it doesn't scratch the surface of how good he truly is. That's incredible. Now, application. I, I have these on the notes in your, in your phone if you're following along with this, but I'd love for you guys to discuss these with your, your family, with your, your gospel community as we leave this time. But why would we seek the approval of a world that doesn't approve of our God? 
Why should we desire acceptance of men who reject the one that we care about the most? Right? What areas of your life do you tend to desire acceptance the most? In your parenting? In your marriage? Uh, in your relationships outside of the family? At work? What areas of your life do you tend to, I, I, I really desire to be accepted in this area. Maybe you have an identity crisis there of your own. What area or areas of your life have you written God off? Have you seen him and said, eh, not much to write home about? How can we as a gospel community, as a church, how can we help each other not become numb to this love? How can we help each other not forget to pull the parachute whenever we are falling deeper into love with our Lord. For centuries, sacrifices had been made to, as a placeholder for atonement, and all of these sacrifices that had been made were pointing forward to someone who could hold the place forever. And that someone has been revealed, and that is why we're celebrating what we celebrate during Advent. The person who has come to take sin away from the world is here. He's here. From, from Isaiah 53 to John 1, in history it's about 700 years of time. But in God's economy of time, it's just a step. Is just a step. In closing, got another quote. He promised in Isaiah 53 a in detail a sacrifice. Every animal sacrifice in the whole Old Testament economy pointed toward one final lamb who would take away sin. And when Christ, the sinless one, came, he offered his life in the full final sacrifice for sin. God showed to all heavenly beings, all earthly beings, and all the occupants of hell that he would rather the blood of his son be spilt than one shred of his promise not be fulfilled. He is a faithful God, and seeing his faithfulness is seeing his glory. Seeing his faithfulness and seeing his glory is reading Isaiah 53. So, I want to end how I started. Our prayer through this Advent season, as, as we encounter God as a promise keeper through the ages, that we will learn how to live today in the comfort of God's promises about tomorrow. Would we have our perspective shifted in a way to see that in some way our life and Christ's return is yet a step. It's a step away. Would we see afresh His glory in Isaiah 53 and in all of the redemptive story during this Advent season? Would you pray with me?